truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. We thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you for the gift of the Psalms. But we acknowledge that what we read here is challenging. In some ways it's disturbing. And in other ways it confronts us in ways that we don't want to be confronted. Would you help us to come to this text convinced that there is life here? That there is goodness here. That you speak to us here. Give us the humility to receive those words and be changed by them. We ask 
your Holy Spirit would be present and active. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's happened. The horde has descended. Once again, Tallahassee has welcomed thousands of rabid college students into our town. Well, not all of them rabid, uh, just some of them. I don't know if you've noticed this, but this annual pilgrimage from home to towns like Tallahassee, college towns all over our nation, this pilgrimage makes Christians nervous. And it's not just because of the parties and general moral debauchery of campus. It's something more. It's a nervousness that you can hear in a headline that I read recently. A headline that asked, Why are young people leaving the church? Why is this generation walking away from faith? And you see those types of articles during this time because the move from home to college is often a move away from faith. And the insecurity of that headline is not just because we are concerned with our young people, which we are. It's not just because we're concerned with the viability of the church as an institution lasting in our country. It comes from a more personal place. It comes from the place of asking, if they are leaving, why are we staying? Does this church, faith, life with God, does it mean what I think it meant when I see people all around me rejecting it? And we think that those concerns are uniquely modern, but they're not. They're ancient, and they are even biblical. Psalm 73 is a song written by someone who came remarkably close to walking away. Came remarkably close to leaving God and His people. And this poem that starts saying, God is good, but then immediately moves in verse 2 to say, my feet had almost slipped. I almost left. This poem that has deep misgivings, surprising misgivings about the goodness of God, made it into the worship of God's people. So, I think we need to consider it. I think we need to consider this song, and as we do this morning, I want to ask two questions. I want to ask, first of all, why do we want to leave, and then why should we want to stay? So first, why do we want to leave? In verses 4 to 14 of this text, the writer gives us many good reasons to leave based on observation. So he collects data. He collects data about these people that he calls the wicked, the arrogant, and he collects data about his own life. And then he compares the data that he has collected, and he sees two important differences. He sees, first of all, that these other people, these other people are fat. 
And understand that in this culture, his culture, and in actually in many cultures around the world, to be fat, to call someone fat, is not an insult. It is something to aspire to. Because fatness is seen as a sign, a symbol of prosperity and of success. And so he sees these people, and he sees their lives, and he sees that they are comfortable. They have ease, they have success, they have prosperity. And then he looks at his life, and not so much. Verse 14, he says, I am stricken all day long. Uh, in the Hebrew, stricken is it's not good. <laughs> Their life is full of goodness, of ease, of comfort. My life is full of pain. But there is a more disturbing difference. Because while his life is full of pain, he has devoted himself to pursuing God. Verse 13, I was pure in heart. I washed my hands. He has devoted himself to knowing God and living the life that God wants him to live. And then he looks at these other people, these people who live in comfort and in ease. And they have not devoted their life to God, they have devoted their lives to themselves. They had pursued their own desires, their own wants and needs, to the degree that they even harmed others and ignored or rejected God. Verse 11, where is God? He doesn't know. So, God-focused, pain and trouble. Self-focused, fat and happy. And as the writer of this psalm looks at that difference, as he meditates on that difference, it creates in him, it fosters in him envy. Verse 3, I was envious when I saw their lives. Understand that envy is not just desire. Envy is desire distorted by comparison. So the problem here is not that this poet looks around and sees, hey, it would be nice to have their prosperity. It would be nice uh, to have some of the things that they have in their life. It is as he looks at that, he begins to want it, and he begins to want it so much that he wants it more than he wants God. And this is why he almost walked away. He almost walked away, not only because he wanted what other people have, but he wanted it so much that he was do, willing to do what they had done to get it. He not only wanted what they have, but how they had it. And he began to want it more than God. This is why people walk away from faith. This is why they walk away from God. This is why they walk away from church. Now there are serious intellectual questions and objections to the Christian faith. Many of 
your students will encounter them this year. And I don't want to discount those, and I hope that Center Point is a place where we can welcome those questions and we can thoughtfully wrestle with them. But when people walk away, it is not a matter of the mind, it is a matter of the heart. And not the heart in some romantic, superficially emotional sense, but the heart in the sense of what controls us, of the desires that rule our life, that motivate our behavior. People walk away because their desires are more shaped by comparison than they are by worship. They walk away because they look around them and they grow to want something or someone more than they want God. Many of you know All Saints Coffee Shop, not far from here, and many of you will get to know it this year. And in the bathroom of All Saints, well, in the boys' bathroom, I don't know if, I don't know if the girls' bathroom is like this, uh, but in the boys' bathroom, they, they put up the paint that you can write with chalk on, and they leave pieces of chalk out. And then people write all sorts of profane things on the wall. Uh, but at some point last year, someone wrote on the wall of the boys' bathroom, chocolate is good. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Um, and then someone else came and smudged out one of the O's in good. So that it read, chocolate is God. That's what envy does in our life. It smudges out the second O in good. Not only with chocolate, but with all sorts of desires. Good desires. Desires for success. uh, Desires uh, for possessions. uh, Desires for relationships. Desires for pleasure. Many of them good. That as we look around and we compare ourselves to the people around them, we begin to grow in those desires to the point where that second O is smudged out and they become not good, but they become God for us. They rule what we do. They rule how we feel. They rule the decisions that we make. Are your desires shaped more by comparison or worship? Are your desires shaped horizontally? As you look at the people around you, your neighbors, your classmates, the people you work with, do those feed your desires and shape them? Or are your desires shaped vertically as you come and worship God. Now, why would we choose worship? Why would we choose worship over comparison? Isn't that just the way life works, that culture shapes what we want? Why would we choose something other than that? Why would we choose worship? In other words, why should we stay? We leave because we want something more than God. So why should we stay? 
Verse 17 changes everything in this poem. The poet walks into the sanctuary of God. He walks into the temple. And it changes everything. He no longer wants to leave. He wants to stay. And remember, the temple is how God lived with His people in the Old Testament. It's how He dwelled with them. It's how He was near them. So that at the beginning of this psalm, He says, it is, God is good to Israel. And then at the end of the psalm, in verse 28, He explains what that means. He says, God is good because He is near. And God was near to them in the temple. And remember that for us, as Christians, for the Christian church, our access to the temple, our access to the presence of God is Jesus. The New Testament tells us that He fulfills the purpose of the temple for God to be with us. We come into God's presence. He dwells with us through His Son, Jesus. So why does the temple make such a difference? What is it about God with us that makes us want to stay? Well, we find in the temple a story and a meal. Okay, so verse 17, he walks into the temple, and what does he find out? It says he discerns their end. And then he goes on in verses 18 to 20 to describe how God will judge those who have harmed others and rejected Him, those who have lived for themselves to the degree that they have committed injustice and they have rejected God. He says God will judge them. And then, in verses 23 and 24, He says on the positive side, God guides me and He will lead me to glory. You see, in the temple He is reminded that God is telling a story in the world. And it is a story of justice. It is a story of the humble being lifted up and the proud being taken down. So he is reminded of this story that God is telling. But here's the problem with it. The problem with the story is the waiting. It's future. What about now? Well, he finds in the temple not only a story, but a meal. Look with me again, and let's read verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He finds in the temple that God is his portion. What does that mean? Well, understand this psalm was written by a priest. It says it was written by Asaph, and that is a name that's associated with a family of priests who led music at the temple. And know in the Old Testament that the families of priests did not possess land. So, when God brought his people Israel into the place that he had promised to them... He divided it up into portions. And every family was given one portion. 
And that portion helped to feed them. Except the tribe of Levi, the family of priests. They were not given a portion of land for their food. What happened because of that is that the priests were entirely dependent on the temple and the sacrifices that were brought there for their food. The temple, the place of God's presence, was their portion. Why? Because God was teaching them, and God is teaching us, that He is the one who ultimately satisfies. He is the one who meets the deepest hungers that we have. He ultimately is our portion. And so we find at the temple both the perspective of what God is doing in the world and also the satisfaction of who God is for His people. And we find both of those in Jesus. You know how sometimes in television shows and movies... Uh, play a trick on you where you're watching a scene and you think one thing is going on and then the camera will pull back and you'll find out there was something going on that you didn't know about. So the show Arrested Development does this a lot. All right? One of my favorite scenes is there's a conversation, the frame is a conversation between, uh, I think it's Michael and George, talking about Buster. And they're criticizing him. And they're saying how weak he is and how awful he is. And they come to the end of the conversation, it kind of pauses, and the camera pans out, and Buster is sitting right there the whole time. That, <laughs> that is similar to what the gospel does for us. The story, the message about Jesus. It pulls the camera back on our lives and world. And it shows us that there are things happening that we cannot always see. That God through His Son Jesus is telling a story. And it is a story of justice. It is a story where the humble are lifted up and the prideful, the arrogant are taken down. It is a story where everything will be made right. The problem with that sentence is the will. It's the waiting. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, Jesus as our temple is not only a story, but he is also a meal. The end of Luke's gospel in the New Testament, this is after Jesus has died and after he has risen again, we find two disciples and they are walking on a road towards a town named Emmaus. And they know that Jesus has died, but they don't know that he has risen from the dead. And they're walking along on this road and Jesus shows up and they don't recognize him. And these disciples are very depressed because what has, happened, what has happened, their hope has died. The one who they thought was the Messiah has died, and so they are down. And Jesus asks them, why are you so blue? And they explained all that has happened, and Jesus says, don't you understand? And then he tells them the story. He tells them the story of how all the expectations of the Old Testament, of a world made right, all of those expectations came on him. He fulfilled them. And they receive his teaching, but they still don't get it. And they still don't recognize him. And then they arrive at the town of Emmaus, and they invite Jesus over to dinner. 
And they sit down at the table, and Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he hands it to these two disciples. And Luke tells us that in that moment, their eyes were opened, that they knew Jesus in the breaking of bread. Why? Because he is our portion. His body was broken so that we could be fed with the life-giving presence of God. He is the one in whom we find our deepest satisfaction. And when we are satisfied in Him, we stay. My dad when he was four or five or six years old, uh, decided he was going to run away from home. Uh, he had had enough of being told what to do, and so he came into the kitchen and told my grandmother, I'm leaving. And my grandmother, being uh, the brilliant woman that she is, uh, she said, okay, I'll help you pack. And, uh, and they, go, they go in his room, they pack clothes in a bag, and she hands it to him and says, I'll see you later. And, and he begins to walk out the door, and she stops him and says, oh, one more thing, Tim. Uh, remember, tonight is Thursday night, and Thursday night is when I make fried chicken for dinner. And my dad paused. He took two steps out the door. He turned around and came back in and said, well, maybe I'll stay a day or two. <laughs> we stay where we are fed. We stay where we are satisfied. And we will remain in faith. We will remain with God and with His people when we know that in Jesus we have enough. That in Him, in what He has done, in who He is for us, we have all that we could want or desire. Even if our lives are full of trouble. A year and a half ago, I was not the pastor of this church, uh, but I was interviewing to be the pastor of this church. And uh, so I came to Tallahassee, and part of my interview was to preach uh, at Sunday evening worship. So much has changed. Um, so I was preaching at Sunday evening worship, and I asked the congregation this question. Is Jesus enough for you? And I want to ask that question one more time this morning. Is Jesus enough for you? You see, the solution to our envy is not to lower our desires. It is to take our desires and bring them by faith to Jesus, the temple, the one who is God with us, and to find that He is enough. Is Jesus enough for you? I want Centerpoint to be about answering that question. I want our life together, as we gather for worship, as we gather in community, as we gather in service, I want us to be about answering the question, is Jesus enough for us? 
I want us to come to Him by faith and know that He is our portion. And He is more than enough. Let's pray.